Hey, it's Mercedes, and you're listening to the West Block Podcast. COVID-19 variants explode, threatening to overwhelm ICUs and outpace Canada's vaccine rollout. We cannot afford to give this virus an inch. The only way to get out of this crisis is the hard way. Fragile public trust and frustration as some provinces head back into lockdown. The reality is, despite everything we've done so far, the COVID-19 situation in Ontario is getting worse. And saying goodbye to Prince Philip, remembering the man who spent more than seven decades walking two steps behind the Queen. Prince Philip will be remembered as a champion for young people, a decorated naval officer, a dedicated philanthropist, and a constant in the life of Queen Elizabeth II. Canadians are mourning the death of Prince Philip this weekend. He died Friday at the age of 99. The quietly charismatic royal prince carried out more than 20,000 royal engagements, headed hundreds of charities, and he founded the Duke of Edinburgh's award. Prince Philip made dozens of visits to Canada many times to personally present young Canadians with that award introduced in 1963 to recognize exceptional young people and their volunteering. Joining me now to talk about this is somebody who was appointed by the Queen to the Order of Merit, an exclusive group limited to just 24 living members. It included Prince Philip and includes currently his son, Prince Charles. Only four Canadians have ever been appointed to the order, and former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien is one of them. Good morning, Prime Minister Chrétien. How are you, sir? Fine, fine. And you? Very well, thank you. And, and we appreciate your time this morning. I know that you had many opportunities over the years to interact with Prince Philip. You were both members of this order, of course, also as the Prime Minister of Canada. What stands out to you as the way that you'll remember the prince? It was always very pleasant to meet with him. He was a very, very interesting companion at a lunch or a cocktail and have, you know, traveling with him. And I, something I did uh, in 1970 for four days. And uh, I keep a great memory of uh, an, an exceptional individual with a lot of color and who played his role uh, as he should be, but he had a way of uh, <laughs> expressing himself and uh, being quite candid on occasion. So it was something that pleased me a lot. When was the last time you saw the prince? I saw him probably a year and a half ago at the last meeting I had at the Orders of Merit. We meet every year and a half and uh, you know, he was, uh, I think I met him three, the day I was in the previous time, it was when, it was exactly the day that he said that it was over. He was not to do anything on public service that he had done enough. And as you mentioned, you know, he told me I had uh, unveiled 25,000 plaques. So I think it's enough, he had said to me. <laughs> and. Uh, you know, and he was a very pleasant chap. Uh, I remember when we were that day, probably at, if I recall, it was at the uh, uh, Windsor Castle, and uh, you know, and I sat next. I sat to his right, and we had uh, quite a, a lunch. It was uh, for him. He wanted to know my views on what was going on, particularly at that time. Uh, 
about President Trump. So uh, it was a very pleasant encounter because I could, be, could give him the impression of a Canadian about uh, this unusual president. But about now, so I'm very curious about uh, what the two of you talked about there. Well, you know, it will be improper for me to reveal what we discuss. Uh, he has some very interesting question. You can think of any, and if it was to be an unusual question, uh, probably he asked uh, the one to me. I wanted to know. He was curious. He was well briefed in uh, international affairs because he was an European, and he, after that, he, uh, he became... Uh, he married the queen, so he had been in public sector all his life. And uh, he was a polyglot. He spoke many languages. <laughs> An anecdote is the first time I saw him, it was in 1967. And I said to him in French, uh, your royal highness, you speak very good French for an Englishman. He said, young man, I'm not an Englishman. And I was speaking French before you were born. So <laughs> hell, I had to shut up and... Uh, you know, uh, you know, he was direct and he didn't do that uh, to offend me. It was kind of his style, you know, very direct and, and truthful. You've also met the Queen a number of times. This obviously is, is a devastating loss for her. And you lost your own wife of over 60 years during a pandemic. The same difficulty of, of so many Canadians who have lost loved ones in a time when we cannot grieve normally, when we cannot gather together in the way that we would. And as someone else who has been in the public eye and, and knows what it is to have that partner in your life who is there through the incredible highlights and the very difficult times, what advice would you give the Queen on coping with this kind of a loss? She's a very courageous woman. I met her since 1967. I, had many private discussions, even, you know, when I was Minister of Justice at the time of patriation of the Constitution, I had to brief her a few times and in London, and I met her on her visit in Canada. So I know I had a very many occasions to discuss with her many situations, and uh, she's a very courageous, intelligent, and dedicated person. So she will face the storm, and it's going to be difficult. I went through that uh, to lose your partner uh, for me it was 62 years of marriage and five years of friendship and this, it is even longer for prince uh, the queen and prince philip so but uh, you know with the help of her family and so on she will face the reality and as usual she will do it with grace and courage and discretion uh, Mr. Christian, our, our condolences on the loss of your wife, Aline. We're very sorry to hear that. I know we haven't spoken to you since that sad day. When you plan to pay your respects to Prince Philip, obviously this is not a year when people are able to go and attend a funeral. How do you plan to do that? Well, I don't know exactly what it will be available for me to communicate my uh, condolences to Her Majesty, but I will do that in writing probably and uh, you know, I will tell her that I, I, got, I had great respect for her husband, who was a, a great public servant. You know, he served all his life. He started in the army when he was a kid, and he stayed in public eye for all his life. And, uh, you know, it is not easy. I've done only 40 years of that. He's done quite a lot more than I. Some people are... quite enough for me, too. 
Some people are questioning whether the royal family is still relevant for Commonwealth countries like Canada. What's your opinion on that? Two things is that it is not a controversy in Canada. And uh, it was a controversy in Australia. There was a referendum and they decided to keep it. There's still some people who talk about against uh, the monarchy in New Zealand and Australia. In Canada, it's not a big problem. You know, no, we, we, we're comfortable. There's, you know, a lot of people could live without it, but they don't make it a controversy. And we have to live with the reality too. Under the constitution to remove the monarchy, we'll need the consent of all the provinces. So it's going to be quite complicated because whatever the belief of some people, I know the situation, they will try to use the occasion to give a yes to extract something from the federal government. And I've been there at the time of patriation of the constitution. So they will jump on the occasion to try to uh, make the federal to pay for that. So it's going to be a very complicated process if anybody wanted to do that, but I cannot predict if there is, but you know, at this time, uh, as I used to see uh, the queen, you know, I discussed that with the queen a few times in our career. And I would say that it was not a controversy in Canada while it was a controversy elsewhere. Mr. Kretchen, this is a, a very difficult time for a lot of Canadians. We're in a third wave of COVID-19. People are worried about their health. They're worried about their jobs. People are talking about whether there is a crisis in public trust of government officials at all levels. We're waiting to hear about what the Liberal budget will entail, about the government's plan to get out of this. You've been the Prime Minister of this country. What advice do you have for our leaders on what needs to be done in Canada to lead us out of this very dark and difficult days of the third wave of the pandemic? You know, when you're prime minister or premiers, you get up in the morning and you have to do your best on every day that you're facing. And I think that everybody at this time of crisis, every premiers and the prime minister and the ministers are very preoccupied. There is no easy solution because uh, you know you have to listen to the advisors who are in the science field and the people who are on the economic side who are preoccupied about the growth of the economy. Of course, this has hit us badly. It's created a recession. We seem to be getting out of the recession. I was watching on the Friday the, the report on the creation of jobs. In the last month, we've done quite well in Canada. There is no easy solution. And I've been in a lot of crises in my life. And what you have to do is to do your best. And at the end of the day, to be able to tell yourself, I've done my best. Always, when you're in public life, there's always people who applaud and sometimes more people who disagree. But if they're not happy with you, there's a nice solution when come the election. And I've been elected for me 12 times in my district and the in three majority government, I was uh, one of the few lucky ones who never knew any defeat. But every time of every election, the first speech I would prepare will be the speech in case I will be defeated. It's better to write it at the beginning of the campaign than to write it when you have been defeated. Because when you're sure of winning, you tend to be generous in your speech of, of defeat. But if you're on the spur of the moment, you can say something stupid that will uh, destroy your image forever. So 
Public life is difficult and all the premiers and the prime minister are doing their best. I would disagree with some of the things they do, but I'm not there and I don't want to be the Monday morning quarterback. What are some of the things you would disagree with? If they ask me, I will tell them, but not through TV. <laughs> well, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you I, I don't so think much. You ask the question and you understand why I'm not replying. I do. I do. I understand the, the statesman-like role that uh, former it, prime ministers play. It's not proper unless it is a major crisis to come and comment on what the government is doing when you have been in the government for so long. I had to live with a situation like that in the past, and I know what is the proper behavior in circumstances like that. Well, thank you for joining us and thank you so much for taking our questions. We hope that you are well and you stay well and we have the opportunity to talk to you again soon. It was my pleasure to be with you today, madame. And good Sunday. Going to work is something that many of us took for granted before the pandemic. But now many Canadians are at risk of losing their jobs in the third wave as variants drive more lockdowns. Over 1.5 million Canadians are unemployed, and it's expected to get worse before it gets better. How will the Trudeau government respond as they get set to release their first budget in two years on April 19th? Joining me now is Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion, Carla Qualtro. Thank you for joining us, Minister. How are you? See you. You know, a, a lot of Canadians are, are very concerned today. They're, they're watching these lockdowns that are happening across the country. Small businesses that survived the first and second set uh, may not survive the third. The government is promising we're going to get out of this, but we haven't seen a lot of a strategy so far. So what is your strategy as the minister who's in charge of the workforce to get Canadians back on track? Well, I would slightly disagree with that because what, what I think we've seen in today's job numbers show is that our focus on uh, supports for workers and supports for businesses have resulted in businesses very quickly rehiring when they have the opportunity to do so. So although I don't think next month's job numbers will be as hopeful because they will reflect the lockdowns that are happening now, I think businesses and indeed workers can take comfort in the fact that when when businesses open, there will be jobs and people will be hiring very quickly. These the job numbers are rebounding very quickly after these waves. Um, and I know that that is small comfort for people today, but also um, I want to remind people of the supports that are available through the Canada Recovery Benefit um, while they're waiting to go back to work. One of the criticisms your government has faced is over sick days. You did introduce a program that allows for federal sick days, but experts say it takes a long time to actually get the money out of that. And in those cases, with people who are living paycheck to paycheck, they can't wait that long. And that even when they do get the money, it's not as much as when they were working. Are you looking at addressing that and fixing the program so that it's more likely that those who need to take sick time can do so? Good question. And of course, as we've been doing since the beginning, we are always looking to make improvements to our programs, which is why we recently added another two weeks onto the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit. So now workers have up to four weeks. I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure um, what numbers you're talking about in terms of the time it takes to get the benefit. The vast, vast majority of workers are getting it within three days if they have a direct payment through CRA. Um, And 
we've always ensured, I think, since the beginning that paid sick leave was a foundational piece of all of our um, income supports, CERB, now the recovery benefit, of course, EI. Um, but we really are challenged to get people to actually um, apply for this. It, there's a real disconnect that we're trying to, to, to really dig in on. Why do you think that disconnect exists? What's, what's causing that if the program is working? Yeah, well, we've got a couple of, 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 of things we're looking at. First of all, a lot of people are just going directly to the Canada Recovery Benefit. So claiming the recovery benefit, even if they're off work because they might have symptoms or have been told to go home because they are, are in contact with someone who's sick. So a lot of people are just going directly to the recovery benefit and not taking the sickness benefit. Also, they're turning to their employer programs first um, instead of the recovery sickness benefit. But I'm, I'm constantly out there trying to get people to, uh, you know, really um, take advantage of the fact that there's four weeks of, of sick pay for them. It is not at, at their wages always. Um, and we're, you know, working closely with provinces and employers to, to, to kind of message this as a complimentary measure um, available to every single worker in this country who, who isn't working because of COVID or sick leave or, sorry, self-isolation or quarantine. Um, but this isn't an instead of what they get through their employer or province. It's in addition to what they get or if they don't get anything. Childcare is a big thing that we're expecting to see in the budget. Your government has promised that. We don't know, obviously, exactly what it's going to look like. But what have the experts told you the components need to be to have a program that allows women to get back into the workforce, especially women who have dropped out during the pandemic? A lot have suggested this would have to be a very wide-ranging and comprehensive program to really succeed in the goals. I think you've you've absolutely nailed it. We we've heard time and time again that childcare is an economic imperative um, to get women back into the workforce. And if you look at the labor market participation rates that came out today, 60% of women are in the labor market and 70% of men. That's because women are not even putting themselves out there right now because of their care responsibilities, and that's concerning. And any good kind of economic recovery strategy will necessarily have to have as a component some form of childcare support because women need this women workers need the families need this let's even be broader than women families need this you were saying earlier that you're you're confident the job numbers seem to rebound once businesses stand back up but obviously the third wave will take a, a significant toll on canadians what are you planning going forward because the current programs might be working under the current circumstances although there's certainly lots of criticism mm -hmm. of them as well uh, but if this gets worse what do you have up your sleeve Good question. So, you know, right now we've recovered as of, you know, the March numbers, about 91% of the jobs that were lost during the pandemic. But as I said, and as you've said, this this will most likely change and the numbers will dip um, in the negative again because of this third wave and lockdowns. And what we're constantly looking at is how we can um, improve and pivot our income supports, both for individual workers, but also for businesses to kind of reflect the reality of what we're seeing around the country because there's different things going on economically you know i'm i'm here in british columbia where businesses are still open and kids are still in school everywhere and that's a very different reality than what you're seeing in ontario and quebec so we're looking to make sure our, our programs and supports can respond nimbly to different realities across the country when it comes to essential workers, a lot of people are saying, look, we need to look at who we're vaccinating. They should be prioritized. Teachers, people who are working on the front lines in grocery stores. Um, 
I know this is a provincial jurisdiction, but do you think perhaps as the minister in charge of the workforce, you should be looking at a program for the federal government to set aside some vaccines for essential workers, especially those who work for the federal government? Well, and that is exactly what's happening on the side of the federal government. So there's a federal allocation of vaccine that we distribute to the populations that we're responsible for um, within the federal workforce. So Corrections Canada, Border Services, um, Indigenous communities. And what we rely very heavily on is the recommendations by NACI, which everybody knows what NACI is now all of a sudden, which is the national um, advisory committee on immunization. And they're really focused on you know, which stages, at which stages, which populations they recommend should be vaccinated. But ultimately, it is um, a provincial decision, which isn't to say that we're not all working very closely. I speak regularly with my provincial employment colleagues, and we talk about, you know, what is the target, what's happening in this meatpacking meat packing, um, complex, what's happening over here in this community, to really try and and be as cohesive as possible, federal, provincial. But they're the, the approaches by the provinces are, are different um, and, and justified to them. Okay, Minister, that's all the time we have for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Nice to see you. Take care. In Ontario, starting tomorrow, hospitals are halting all but emergency and life-saving surgeries due to the growing caseload of COVID-19 patients. At the same time, Ontario is in a lockdown and stay-at-home order in a desperate attempt to pull the emergency brake. Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie is at the heart of one of the worst-hit regions in the country, and she joins us now. Thank you so much for joining us, Mayor Crombie. You are in the middle of such a, a difficult place, such a hot spot in Canada. And one of the things that you've said you believe would make a difference is prioritizing cities like Mississauga to receive the vaccine. Do you think that we should be taking vaccines from less hard hit areas and moving them to hot spots? Well, Mercedes, when your house is on fire, it doesn't make any sense to be watering the house, the homes around you. You need to attack and address the hot spot where the house where the fire is occurring. That's how you address it. So here in, in Peel, Mississauga, Brampton, Caledon, we're 10% of the population of, of, of the province of Ontario. Yet we're 20% of the cases, of all COVID cases. And we seem to be increasing at a rate of 35% each week for the past couple of weeks. It had been 20% and now with the spread of the new variants, we've been increasing 35% per week. So the situation is quite dire. Our hospitals are full at capacity. They're transferring patients out. We are seeing younger patients with more severe symptoms and uh, they're staying much longer in the hospitals. So the situation is very dire. So yes, of course, we think that the vaccine should be directed to the hotspots, the inferno, as the premier has called us, so they can do the most work. Let's be honest, if we can't get the virus under control here in the hotspot zones in Peel and, and the city of Toronto, we can't stop the virus. It will continue to control us. We won't be controlling it. Who do you think should be prioritized to receive those vaccines? We've been doing it according to age, but I know you've talked about essential workers as being a priority. 
It's a great question. And I'm so grateful that there's a greater supply of vaccine coming in now, and it's made a huge difference. So uh, we at, fir at first, the, the framework allowed for the most vulnerable to be, uh, to be vaccinated, our seniors who were hardest hit, most impacted in the first wave, and, and then again in the second wave. So once we uh, uh, vaccinated everyone in the long-term care homes and in the seniors' homes, we went 80 plus, 70 plus, then it was time to address really the front lines, those essential workers that are keeping our economy going in those large workplaces. We've all heard the stories about Amazon with 900 cases, Canada Post as well here in Mississauga, a great number of cases as well. It's those frontline essential workers that are in manufacturing, factory workers, food processing, warehousing, etc. And because we've had to close our schools here in Peel on Easter Monday, right up until the 18th, we think that our educators should be on that list as well. And of course, our transit drivers, because they're front facing to the public as well. And so I'm very grateful that earlier in the week, the premier has made that adjustment and realized that unless we get the people who most need the vaccine in those large workplaces where they are transmitting the virus, then taking it home, increasing the community spread, we won't get control of it. There's been a lot of discussion between the federal, provincial governments and the local. When you look at the situation in Peel that is so dire, who do you believe is accountable for how bad things have gotten? So I'd like I'd rather look at that differently. You know, I think what people have confidence when they see three levels of government working closely together. And it has been very important that we work closely with our provincial and our federal partners. Um, and, and I'm very grateful that the premier has adapted the framework to address the situation. So when we realized that we had va vaccinated the most vulnerable, now it was so important to move to those critical areas in our economy that have been so severely impacted are the essential workers on the front lines uh, and address that situation. The only other thing I would like if he could address the sick pay along with the federal government, I think we need paid sick leave and paid sick days uh, on real time, not make the application after you're sick and not be paid to stay home waiting to hear the results of your test. People are still choosing to go to work. They're choosing their paycheck over their health and their recovery. So this is a very important issue as well. It's one that has not been adequately addressed yet, and I'm hopeful that the federal and the provincial government will work closely to address it. Now that we're addressing the essential workers that they will soon be able to get their vaccine, uh, we've moved to 50 plus, vaccinating 50 plus in Toronto and in Peel, and we're now addressing the educators, our teachers, um, and the essential workers through many of the mobile units that have been set up. Mayor Crombie, do you think that we should be rapid testing truckers and essential workers coming across at the border? We just have a few seconds left, but I know a lot of them are coming into Mississauga. Yes, and certainly the logistics business, trucking, transport businesses are based here in Peel, whether in Brampton or in Mississauga. I think rapid testing is vital. Uh, I think all the large employers here in Peel uh, should implement the rapid testing program. I know they're available. I know the federal government has a store of rapid tests, and I think it's very important, whether it's at our borders or it's in those large places of employment, that we use the rapid testing. Mayor Crombie, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Thanks very much for having me. We're out of time for today. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of the West Block Podcast. We'll be back next week.